If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week, we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, last weekend, what a great weekend. Oh, yeah. It was a a jam-packed weekend, but we had a lot going on. We were celebrity judges at the chili cook-off for Kiwanis at the Wilderness Trace Distillery. And you also had your car and an engine set up at Ham Days in Lebanon. Uh Yes. Mm -hmm. So what kind of engine did you have set up down there? Well, uh, it's it's an old one-cylinder hit-and-miss engine. People ask me when they see it if they're not in that world or know anything about it they um they they don't really know or understand what they are this was invented before the tractor the farm tractor as we know it today these big old engines came in all sizes from little small ones one and a horsepower sometimes even less than that all the way up to 12 or 14 horsepower and you pulled them out in the field and they ran a belt they had a pulley on the side of them they're just a single cylinder they call them hit and miss engines and you would bale hay, pump water, generate electricity, run a sawmill, run a line shaft in a machine shop, a uh, myriad of uses. Uh, in Perryville, uh, they actually generated electricity, you know, at one time. With really? Them. So these things, I grew up around them, knew a lot of guys, older guys that were interested in them. They're real simple, uh, early uh, technology, <laughs> and I can understand it. So that's what made it fun for me because you could see it all work. And it was just a cool thing. And I had it down at Ham Days and ran a uh, combination meal, which was, would shell corn, grind corn, make feed, uh, uh, like it was said, a combination meal. It did a combination What of years would this uh, motor or engine been common? Uh, mine is a 1918 nine-horsepower Fuller & Johnson, made in Wisconsin. Uh, the combination meal uh, is about the same era. And it came from Clemens Coyle's sale when uh, they sold the estate out there. He had it in the barn. So it was just kind of something I remember him running, and uh, I hooked it to my engine, and we ran it down at uh, Lebanon. I had a good friend, Paul Cox, who's passed away, who uh, was very uh, active down there for many years with old antique engines and was a big dealer in them at one time. And we have that show in his honor every year. His son and family always come, and 
and we really enjoy it. It's it's something I look forward to every year. Are you going to be uh, at any upcoming shows or yeah, uh, festivals? Yeah, I'll be at Forkland uh, here in a couple weeks. Not this coming weekend, but the next one. Uh, I'll have it over there. Um, and uh, probably the old car, too, because they have a car show as well. So I'll probably just take it over there, too. And uh, then I think Penn's Store is having an antique car show, so I may have the old uh, model speedster down there. And that's not well. this coming weekend, but the next, the following weekend. Yes, I know that's the following weekend is Forkland, and the weekend after that, I think, is Penn Store. Okay, that's a, it's the car show. I don't know much about it, but everybody will check on that before they take my. And word you go online, Facebook, Google, Penn Store, Forkland yes. Festival, yep. those kinds of things. I know the festival date, but I'm not sure about Penn Store date. Okay, before we get into today in history, <clears throat> excuse me, I was. There's legends about Hitler, Billy the Kid, and others that claim they were really not killed, and that they people like them, you know, at least claims that they survived to live to an old age. And I come across a new one that I wasn't familiar with when I was flipping through some channels the other night, and I think it's on the Don Wildman program uh, where they claim John Wilkes Booth did not die from Boston Corbett shot, and that he survived. Mm-hmm. You know, the premise is that Phineas Langdon Bates, an American attorney. Uh, an author of The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth, basically Bates claims that John Wilkes Booth was not murdered by Union Army soldiers on April 26, 1865, but successfully eluded capture altogether and lived for many years thereafter under a series of assumed names, notably John St. Helen and David E. George. What's your thoughts on these? <laughs> uh, never bought it. <laughs> I, I've, you know, that's been around a long time. Um, yeah, I think it takes a lot of faith. Uh, I mean, there were so many people involved in the capture of John Wilkes Booth. Uh, hundreds of people saw him break his leg when he jumped from the stage. Yeah. You know, they were there. They witnessed it. So, And then when they captured him, of course, that was the man that had a broken leg, and he was in the barn, and if he wasn't him, who would, why would you be running, and who were you if you weren't? You know, it, it takes – to me, it just takes a whole lot more faith to believe. And, and all really, most of that comes back to some family's recollection of what somebody said. Or There's no real basis for it. It's it's fun history for some people. Um, but, you know, when we started our podcast, we said we were kind of seekers of the truth. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know everything about all this stuff. I'm far from it. I mean, I don't think I know hardly anything in depth about anything, to be honest with you. But, but someone that's interested enough to study history, you, I, you just can't go there when there's so many witnesses. And so, that you know, there was trial on all these conspirators, and the government was all over this thing. And uh, no, I, well, I just don't you think know, that's possible. I love a good conspiracy theory. Yeah. And just because it's a conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's not true. It's kind of taken, you know, the meaning of the conspiracy theory is, is taken on a derogatory term that it means it's mm-hmm. foolish, but not all of them are, and th- most of them are, especially like in the case of what we're talking about. But, you know, I was flipping through the other night, and I just happened to catch it, and it kind of drew my attention, and I thought, well, yeah. this is interesting. I'm going to ask Harold about it. And Yeah, I've seen that, and I and there's books. You know, I probably have a few in there on this library somewhere. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've heard all that, read some of it. But it all just comes back to somebody's recollection. There's really no... You know, and this apparently this guy made a deathbed confession to this attorney that wrote the book. To me, right. it sounds like it was an attorney trying to sell some books. Could be, could be, and uh, I, I don't know of a, a very any famous person 
Well, you take Amelia Earhart, they think she may have survived the crash and be mm-hmm. living out her life somewhere. Hitler may have, you know, he may have escaped to Argentina. And, you know, and there's one even out that he, he died out in the West, American West, and he yeah. survived and lived here in America. And Jesse James sl- wasn't really, you know, and yeah. just on and on and on. And, and uh, no, I, I, I guess it's kind of dry and boring. But it's just, <laughs> nah, I don't think so. All right, so what do you have for us in uh, today in history? Okay, today in Kentucky history, September, well, I've got the 29th. Today's probably the 30th. Uh, yeah, that's, it's I, close I, enough. Yeah, close enough. But the 30th was kind of boring, so I did a 29th. <laughs> <laughs> 29th might be a little boring to some yeah. people. But the tra- a traveling church congregation of five to 600 Baptists. Uh-oh. Yeah. Migrated, a lot of chicken eight. Yeah. Migrated to Kentucky from uh, to near Lancaster, Kentucky from Virginia as one community. And I guess who the leaders were? Oh, uh, I don't know. You tell Lewis me. and Elijah Craig. And Captain William Ellis. Now, Elijah Craig. You remember Elijah Craig? He yes. Was the, he was the bourbon early bourbon. Maker. He was supposed to have uh, found or come up with bourbon, right? The idea of bourbon. Now, I was going to say the Baptists have come a long way, but it, I guess it depends on your point of view. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, you know, the Baptist church I belong to kind of frown on on, yeah. on the bourbon. But right. anyway, you uh, could dance a little bit, but yeah, couldn't drink a bourbon. Whole lot. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, in 1862, Union General Jefferson C. Davis, uh, in retaliation, uh, excuse me, no relation to Jeff Davis, the Confederate uh, president, uh, killed uh, William Bull Nelson at the Galt House in Louisville, Kentucky. And this was right before, by the way, the Battle of Perryville, which was in October the 8th, 1862. This was right at the end of September, right before they came to the, and was involved in the battle here. And guess what? Davis was never really charged or held accountable for that. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got into it in, in the Galt house, and uh, he pulled a pistol and shot him, and nothing ever came of it. Well, I will be there next month for about a week, and which reminds mm-hmm. me, you was talking about the uh, the Baptist uh, movement there. I've got a good friend of mine who's been a Baptist preacher for 40 years, and you know probably who I'm talking about. <clears throat> We're getting on an elevator together. And uh, it was just me and him. This little old lady comes onto the elevator. And uh, we're kind of looking at her like, you know, what floor? And he's standing there next to the buttons. And, and she's like, move your beer belly. He's like, ma'am, I'll have you know, this is, I'm not, this is not a beer belly. I'm a Baptist preacher. She said, well, move that chicken coop so I can get to the buttons. <laughs> so <laughs> I've never let him live it down. <laughs> That's a good one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? We're, we're going to continue part two of A Boy Named Sue. Brian, you got any questions about the last one? Well, all right. Do you want to go back and maybe talk a little bit about what we did and talked about in the last podcast? Because I'd really like to know what was life like at that time, living with gorillas and the Civil War and everything else going on at that time. Yeah, well, I wish I could. I try my best to put myself in that world, and, and that's what's the fun part about this. The more you, no matter how much research you do, whatever you find, it's always different. Mm-hmm. It, and usually has a very practical side to it that you don't think about because you're not in that world. And there's always uh, more to the story than you'll ever be able to research. But And it's also from whoever's writing it's exactly, point of view. point of view. You've got to always remember that history is always written by... The victors. By whoever... From their perspective, but uh, this was a vicious time, and I keep 
saying that in the first podcast, but imagine uh, for those of us that live in the country, being out on your farm, going about your daily whatever, plowing, uh, feeding your cattle, cutting hay. And, of course, back then it was all so laborious. Everything was done. It, it could be a typical day for a Just farmer a or whoever. And then, or a typical day for somebody in a town, small right. town around this area. Most of the towns were really small right. in this part of the world, and they still are. A lot of them still are. But just imagine, you're, 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 say you've been in the Union or Confederate Army for a couple of years, is usually the term, and you came home possibly wounded, possibly a hero, possibly <laughs> you didn't. You, and you look up, and here comes a group of 20 or 30 men on horses yeah. riding down to you. Now, you know this is not going to end well, probably. Right. And so you don't know who they are. It, even if they are on the same side you're supporting, it could still go bad for you. And you can't tell by looking at them. Right. Because most of the Southern guys in this story, a lot of them dressed as Union guys. Now, I don't know if that was the opposite. I don't think I ever heard of a Union guy dressing like a Southerner. It could have happened. I'm probably at some point maybe it did. But you're there. Say you were a, a Union guy. And these groups come riding up to you with Union uniforms on and start asking you questions. Or maybe they already know who you are, and they just gun you down. And you don't really have a chance because you're, you're, you're vulnerable. You're, right. you're, you can't, there's nothing you can do to defend yourself against that kind of an onslaught. Or they come to your house in the middle of the night, bust in the door. It happened, and we're going to hear about it you know, in this yeah. story. So I, I think that that was a, a very very bad time to be alive here yeah it was a rough time. I mean, times were hard without were hard. without having to deal with all that yeah and and, and it was just it's just so much lawlessness it, it, they really you depended on the home guard mm-hmm. to try to help take care of it but they were always a day late a dollar well short i mean they were working they or farming or a yeah, shop owner exactly. or something so by the time they were notified it was too late and some of those guys were made up of what they call the invalid corps and that's what happened down at bradfordsville they called it the invalid corps i don't think that's a good name for no. it but these guys had already served some of them had gotten wounded some of them not and they had formed a home guard and they would you know if there was guerrillas threatening the area, they'd get a telegraph or something maybe from the authorities to be aware of what's going on, to be alert. Now, was Bradfordville, was it predominantly southern or northern? Who, where were they? I would up? think, Brad, I don't know. I, I, I would think that it's probably pro union. Okay. I don't because know. I, know I know Quantrill attacked it, and we're going to talk about that okay. later, but um, I, I'm not sure. And, 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 and the another strange thing about this guerrilla stuff, it may have had very little to do. With the reason they attacked it, it may have been a just an attack of to rob and pillage. Opportunity. Oppor- uh, yeah, opportunity. Um, Brian, if you want to, we'll go ahead and get started. We kind of left off the last podcast uh, at the end of December, or excuse me, end of eighteen sixty four. So we're gonna we're gonna start out with what I call a guerrilla Christmas. All right. Okay. What was Christmas like for what was happening here in Central Kentucky? Uh, Henry Magruder. As we know, who was from Lebanon Junction, uh, Kentucky, rode with Sue Mundy and all these guys. Sometimes he led the group. Sometimes Sue Mundy led the group. Sometimes it was led by others. But in this particular instance, uh, they burned a bridge at New Haven, Kentucky, on the Rolling Fork River. And this was December the 15th, 1864. 
And George Prentice, the editor of the Louisville Daily Journal, wrote that Morgan, excuse me, of Gruder and his gang of thieves deserves the halter, and we hope that they will soon get their desserts. So uh, Prentice had kind of, through his newspaper, had made these guys household names. Uh, he was probably more responsible for uh, this. Now, let me say this to you about, about him. Later, when one-armed Sam Barry went to prison in Sing Sing Prison in New York as being held the longest-held prisoner of the Civil War, who was with Magruder at this place, George Prentice wrote a letter in his behalf, and I have a copy of it, that he was asking to let him out of prison. Wow. How, how soon, how long had he been in? Oh, he'd been in there. He was in 1867, I think, 68. He was still in prison there. Okay. I'll have to look that date up. But he, he died. He never, they were on the, they were getting ready to let him out in the process, and he caught uh, a fever of some type, and he never, he died. Didn't make As a matter of fact, uh, I helped get a, a, a monument put up to him, or a marker, excuse me, not a monument, a marker put up to him there at Sing Sing Prison Grave uh, Cemetery there on his grave. Uh, December 21st, 1864, uh, they boarded a, a river boat called the Morning Star at Lewisport, Kentucky. Now, this group was the same bunch, but this time Big Zay Coulter, who was from uh, Mercer County, Kentucky, uh, seemed to lead this group mm -hmm. at, this, at this time, a few weeks later. Uh, they killed a Union soldier, uh, William Campbell, and they started robbing people. And uh, there were two other Union soldiers, and the steward of the boat jumped over. <laughs> they, they dove into the water rather than have to deal with those, that bunch of gorillas. Uh, Bill Davison robbed the safe on the boat, um, and uh, the, the steward drowned in the river. Uh, he didn't make it. Uh, they robbed every passenger. So they robbed trains, stagecoach, stores, river boats. There wasn't any safe haven from these gorillas. Um, Christmas Day, uh, December 1864, Samuel Oscar Berry, uh, one-armed Sam, uh, committed rape of a slave named Susan Lee, or former slave, a girl, um, which he was, uh, several was after him for that. Um, William Thomas Love uh, wrote in his diary, he was called Salt River Tom, <laughs> <laughs> And he lived in the Van Buren community and went to the Church of Christ there. And uh, Tom Flowers and John Mackey, two gorillas that, that rode with them, uh, rode into town. And they were heavily armed and demanded to know the purpose of the meeting at the church. Uh, Jim Campbell came riding along, and he had a sack of meal on his horse, and Flowers uh, called him a profaner for working on Sunday. <laughs> so, Profaner. Yeah. So he... <laughs> he must have been a Baptist. He demanded him throw the bag of grain down and come into the church. Then the two gorillas rode up and down the street and ordered people to come into the church. I mean, it just... I mean, obviously, probably been drinking. It sounds like it, okay? Yeah. And uh, called on the pastor to sing a song. And uh, there was a fellow named Green Milton... Announced they would sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. And Milton dropped, he said, to a bass, uh, and Flowers took the lead in the <laughs> congregation, <laughs> all sang the other parts. 
He just can't make this stuff up. I'm telling Flowers asked the uh, uh, the pastor to for if he could allow him to speak for just a minute, and he said it reminded him of better days when his sweet mother, who was in Alabama, was to take him the darling boy to the old camp meetings and where hear the soul uh, entrancing songs of Zion that purified his heart and sent a thrilling sensation to his soul. This cruel war, he said, has coated me and molded me into a casket of sin and driven me far from a mother's tender love. Flowers dismissed the audience and no one complained. The congregation <laughs> sang a hymn and filed out without an objection. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You can't make it These up. guys are real characters. You can't make it up. And you know, <laughs> there was a flair. Yeah. About these guys. Yeah. Even if there if, was something about them that were. Well, you should see how they dressed. Now we haven't talked a lot about that, but but uh, I wish I could could paint a picture. Uh, the, the the pictures we have are all, of course, black and white. Right. But oh, red and yellow and and they were flamboyant. Pl- oh, flamboyant wanted to be noticed. They wanted to stand out. Oh, they they were they, type A. Oh, big time, big time. Gregarious people. Right, yeah. right. All right. Then we're going to enter William Clark Quantrell, uh, December of eighteen sixty five. At the end of or excuse me, eighteen sixty four. At the end of of sixty four, uh, Quantrell comes into Kentucky. Okay. Uh, he crosses the Mississippi River, and he has about 45 men. Um, Quantrell, by the way, was born in Canal Dover, Ohio, which is now, I think, Dover, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was an educator and a principal at Union College. Now, if anybody thinks this guy is crude and uneducated and whatever, he attended college there and began teaching at the age of 16. Hmm. That does not fit a psychopathic killer. Does does not seem like that. No. If that's what he was. Right. If that's what some people would Clint describe Gray, him. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in December the 29th, snow fell in Kentucky, and uh, January the second, the Kentucky guerrillas with Sue Mundy headed to Shepherdsville, where they came to the home of a, a guy named Edward Campbell. Now, Edward Campbell had been paroled. His father was Benjamin. Uh, I said Campbell. I'm sorry, Caldwell. His father was Benjamin Cowell, where he he had laid dying. Uh, the boy had got a uh, furlough for 30 days to come home to see to his dad and take care of things that he had to do there. And the guerrillas rode up, stormed into the house, uh, demanded they all surrender. There was other men there. Um, they rifled through the house, tearing up the bedding. Now, people ask me, it's like, Harold, how do you know they did that? Well... We've got court records where they put these guys on trial, and oh. we have eyewitnesses yeah. to these things. So that's how we know. Uh, they broke the furniture, started searching for anything of value, uh, stole a, a pipe, Mr. Coyle's pipe. Now, you say, well, why do you bring that up? Well, there's several pictures of, or a few pictures, rather, of Sue Mundy with this big long stem pipe, and that's where it came from. Uh, and those of us that study that stuff, we find that interesting. And, and, you know, you brought up in the last podcast how they really wanted their pictures taken all the time. You know, yeah. you would think an outlaw, don't take my picture. But these guys, no, anytime they could get in front of a camera, they, they were getting their picture made. Yeah, they would, they would, they would, uh, at, at every opportunity, because they had a lot of them made in, in these two short years here. This yeah, it was actually less than two years that they, before they met their demise, you know, 
So they wanted to be remembered. <laughs> I don't know if you know uh, if it mattered how they were remembered. But they wanted to be remembered. Uh, what's and this is this turns really sad really quickly. Miss Caldwell um, begged for her son's life. She passed out twice, begging for his life, and they ordered her. Uh, to get back in the house, they took her son out to the stable and ordered him to saddle up a horse, and they were going to make him go with him. And he said he's not, wasn't leaving. And uh, you know, this is the here. This is the brutality of these guys. Mm-hmm. And after her begging, and his father laying in there dying, and him there, and he just he knew if he got on that horse and went with them, they would probably take him down the road and shoot him. They, he thought maybe they wouldn't shoot him if he. Probably if he was there in front of his family, no. Henry Magruder pulled a pistol out, put it almost right to his head, and shot him. So and these guys were stone cold killers. Yes. And as he hit the ground, they started the others started shooting into his lifeless body. So, not a n- not a good picture. Uh, by the by, January of eighteen sixty five, the guerrilla problem had gotten so bad it was almost out of control. And it was not only this group, the guerrillas, and, of course, we talked about Quantrail, and we're going to get into that in a minute, but it had gotten out of control. So they'd hired or commissioned a couple guys. I told you in the last podcast we would bring these guys up. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about who they hired was as bad as the people they were chasing. Uh, The one guy from Lincoln County, Kentucky, was named James H. Bridgewater. He led a group of men called the Halls Gap Tigers. Now, I'm not going to say that all of the Halls Gap Tigers were like James H. Bridgewater because I do not know. Right. I've never known of them to be guerrillas in the sense of Sue Mundy and, and this group. Right. However, they did throw their weight around, uh, or Bridgewater did. Um, he did developed quite a reputation of being a horse thief. Uh, but, again, it's from your perspective, if he was a uh, union and in charge, he come up and demanded horses, he got them. Okay, so <laughs> now this is how he met his demise. We'll talk about him a little bit later, getting into the to the uh, fights and stuff here. But in in the July of eighteen sixty seven, in Stanford at the Commercial Hotel, Walter Sanders stormed in and opened fire, killing Bridgewater. And what happened prior to that, during the war, uh, Walter Sanders was a Confederate soldier who had served his time. He was plowing a field near the road, and Bridgewater came riding by. He saw saw him, and he knew that his father had died, and he had inherited a really fine gold watch. And he demanded that watch from Sanders, and Sanders said he wouldn't gonna, he wouldn't let him have it. So he pulled a pistol and shot him, hmm. and took the watch off of him. Now. <laughs> Sanders goes to the ho- to the doctor. I wouldn't say hospital, but he went to the doctor, or the doctor came to him at his home, and he was he survived the gunshot, and he told him to save that bullet, that he would remold it and shoot Bridgewater with it, and he did, and he killed him. Wow. Yeah. So he, There's a lot more to that story, but we don't have time. You, to you know, that would be a good one. We need to maybe focus an episode on that. Yeah. And then Edwin H. Terrell uh, – it was the other guy they hired, General Palmer, hired to hunt and chase gorillas. Uh, Ed Terrell was one of the worst men, I guess, ever come out of Shelby County. Uh, he was a, he was a mean guy. That's why they hired him. That's how desperate the times were. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
he was credited. He actually captured Quantrell. I wouldn't say he personally shot him, but one of his men did uh, in that barn at Wakefield. We'll talk about that more later. But uh, but he run roughshod over people. He stole horses, demanding meals. He would he after he captured Quantrell, you might say it went to his head. He would go into a town, into a hotel, and you know I'm the guy that captured the notorious Quantrell. You know he mm-hmm. demanded free food, and lodging, and throwed his weight around. Took advantage exactly of what he'd done. <coughs> he and then um, after the war there, he he was accused of murder of a man in Jefferson County named Hercules Walker. And uh, he was a Spencer County blacks, also Spencer County blacksmith, Enos Wooten. So there was two men that he had killed, that uh, in in very curious situations. Mm-hmm. He also robbed and killed a stock trader named William Johnson of Illinois. Now this guy came into uh, Shelbyville. He, you know, these stock traders had to carry a lot of cash, and uh, so he was buying cattle and shipping them back on the railroad, and they knew he had money. And they had gotten lured him away uh, from the hotel and took him down to the Clear Creek Bridge and shot him, robbed him, and threw his body in the river. And there was a young girl that witnessed this, and that's one of the things that got him convicted. So they, they Terrell and another guy named Thompson was arrested, and they were taken to Shelby County Jail. <laughs> now, Brian, you're a jailer, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, how would you think that this guy broke out of jail? <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard anything like this. I'd say he crawled out the window. No. Thompson played the banjo. Okay. <laughs> so Thompson would be in there playing the banjo while Terrell was digging under the wall of the jail <laughs> and dug their way out and escaped. <laughs> so you let anybody in jail have a banjo? No. Well, don't do it because they like to dig you out on it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they were posted a $500 reward for their capture. Uh, it was said that he might have even went as far as to Mexico and stayed a little while and came back to Shelbyville. He came back and got all drunk up. <laughs> These guys made a mistake <laughs> of drinking. He was boozing it up at the Armstrong Hotel and swearing at people and everything. And then the there was people fed up with it. They opened fire on him and uh, shot him. Now, here's the irony of him and Quantrell's death, they almost died the same way, although it took Terrell a lot longer Mm -hmm. because they were both shot and paralyzed from the neck down. Mm -hmm. And Quantrell lived a few weeks. Terrell, it like, lived six months. Uh, He was taken to his grandfather's uh, place uh, in Harrisonville, and by the way, which still stands. I've been to these places. Um, And he died... And, and I've never been able to find his grave. I've hunted for years, and I can't find it. It's either there around that area, which I suspected a cemetery right down the road, a church there. Mm-hmm. I suspect it's there, but it's not marked, or it had been marked and somebody destroyed. A lot of these guys that were notorious like this, people would destroy their grave markers. Now, I don't know that that's the case, but I suspicioned it, that that's what happened yeah. to them. So now we enter, you know, we talked about Quantrell coming to Kentucky. We're talking about him riding into Houstonville, Kentucky, January Uh of 1865. Rode up to the Weatherford Hotel and Stables, posed as Union soldiers, 5th Missouri Cavalry. Uh He was Captain Clark, which was his middle name. Um, They went around gathering fresh mounts. Alan Palmer was sent out to the stables. And there was Frank Cunningham was there, Lieutenant Frank Cunningham, who had served in the Union Army. His horse was one that was in the stable. And... 
he he was he was uh, notified that the guys were were rounding up horses. So he goes running out the stable and says, "See, he thinks he's talking to a Union soldier. They posed as Union soldiers coming into Houstonville. He didn't know who these people right. were. Quantrell had never been here before, so it's amazing that anybody would know who he was. Yeah, uh, it's not like the media today. We you know it's just uh, yeah. So anyway, he he says no. You you know I've served and you're not taking my horse and and you know I have a right to keep him and so forth. And Palmer said no. Said he you know he needs a horse and he's taking it. And he said well you know you'll take it over my dead body. And Palmer said well, that's no problem. So he pulled his pistol, shot him right in the head, standing at and uh, and we found his grave in mm-hmm. Houstonville, Kentucky. Uh, then from there they came into Danville where they robbed the citizens, destroyed the telegraph lines. Uh, and Quantrell was recognized there. He went into a hotel there. In Danville. In Danville. And I believe it was a lady that said, hey, said, aren't you that? Well, of course, they had already, you know, been robbing people and everything. And she recognized him. Now, how, you know, that's kind of amazing to me how they she would know who he was. Well, from there, they went on to Harrodsburg, Kentucky, and they went out to a, a little road out there. Uh there's in this house, by the way, is still standing. It was called the Widow Venarsdale House at that time, and it's right down the, the, the few hundred yards below where the Oakland Church was. And there's still a cemetery there today. The church is no longer there, but the, the cemetery is. And uh, there, the guerrillas had gone to this house and maybe another house or two in that area, and demanded that people feed them. You know, right. so yeah. you didn't dare not feed them. So they had cooked and. And, and and so then Bridgewater from Lincoln County comes riding in, and they all take off running. So, uh, Quantrell and twenty five or thirty of them took off. Some of them said even running barefoot. And one of Quantrell's lieutenants, Chat Rennick, there's this is a kind of a legendary story about Bridgewater. He carried a Spencer rifle, and he stood on the porch of that Venarsdale house and shot this Chat Rennick off his horse at like two or three hundred yards. Wow. Uh, and uh, and they, they killed four there. Four Bridgewater killed four of Quantrell's men there. Um, and they were initially buried there at the Oakland Church, but the people in the community just throwed a fit that they didn't want those type, quote, type of people buried in their church cemetery. Yeah. So they dug them up and moved them, and they're now buried in the Harrodsburg Cemetery. I think it's Harrodsburg Springs. Or what's uh, I'm not familiar. But anyway, it's the, the main... Uh, there's a Confederate plot there in the cemetery, and those men are buried there. Okay. Uh, and by the way, back uh, about 20 years ago, I took some of the family members, the descendants of those men there, and we actually showed them where their ancestors had been buried. Had been buried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to this point, at some point in here, and it's just it's so complicated, you all, we have to kind of make this story move, and I can't go into too much great detail. But at some point here in this time frame, the Missouri guerrillas and the Kentucky guerrillas came together. And this is down around Spencer County, Bloomfield area. They all, they all went in that area because of the family connections, southern sympathizers, all kinds of reasons they came into there. And um, they had decided to make some raids up into Scott County. Um, they burned the Midway Depot, robbed some stores, cut telegraph wires in Midway, and then they visited our old buddy Robert Atchison Alexander's Woodburn Farm to 
steal horses. Yeah. First of all, they rode up to him, and, of course, he did not know for sure who they were, but he saw one of the farmhands said, hey, we see them coming up the lane. We see a bunch of soldiers coming. He said, guys, get your guns and get armed. And so they were they had kind of ready for them. So um, when they rode up, they demanded feed for 200 horses. To give an illusion of more men, more strength, I don't know what that was about. Um, then... Uh, Alexander said that he didn't know if he, he could feed that many horses or not. And the se- a second man demanded fresh mounts. Well, then there was this, you might say, a standoff. Um, they were pretty much, actually, he, he, he was, a, he was oh, excuse me, Alexander, he was a, a brave guy uh, to face these guys. He, he didn't seem to, to back down. He said he wanted to, know, wanted to see their papers. He wanted to see their orders who had ordered them to come to his farm and confiscate horses. So one of the guerrillas drew a pistol drew a pistol and said he's got his orders right here. So then he pretty much gave up the ruse that they they were just guerrillas. Yeah. Uh Bill Murray, Bill Marion demanded uh Alexander to surrender um and he refused. Uh and then they talked for a minute and he said, Well if you give us a couple of horses we'll agree to leave without bloodshed. So the guerrillas ended up taking four horses and robbed the, and when they, he took them out to the stables and they got four really good horses. And then the next thing you know, they were back in the house and they had robbed him. And there was a lot more of this story. But again, here's yeah. another guy's livelihood really threatened. I mean, the horses they took were, were some really fine yeah. thoroughbreds. Yeah. Um, in February 1865, they came into Bradfordsville, Kentucky. Uh, we talked about the home home guard there. Um, I'm not sure their objective for coming to Bradfordsville. I can understand them coming to the Woodburn Farm, but I don't understand why they pick certain places to show up. It 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 doesn't to me. I don't understand what you their objective. You think it, it would have had to do with population? I mean, they were going to rob, and there was there's less people there to fight against them. The safer they were, would that have had any effect or any play in it? I, you know, I really wish I knew. I, I, I just, it, it's like trying to herd chickens. You just yeah. don't, they're just going everywhere, you know, and it, it and, and they would break up and go in different groups. And, and this probably isn't scratching the surface, Brian, of what really, all the things that really happened. Yeah. You know? But these are the things that we know that were recorded that happened. So they ride into Bradfordsville. Um, they, they burned several bills of uh, businesses, buildings. The hotel was burnt. Uh, they had a brief fight there with the invalid corps. Um, then they rode out in the country there, and there was a, a gentleman by the name of Pryor Pruitt. He had a big old federal house that was still standing mm-hmm. the last time I was over there. It was along North Rolling Fork River. Beautiful old farm. It sat back off the, off the, in the bottom there. And, uh, and he, they rode up to his house demanding food and to open the door, and he would not open the door. And so they shot him through the door and killed him. Um, I found his grave on the hill behind the house, and he had seven children. Mm. And this was in February in the dead of winter in 1865. Man. So pretty rough times. Um, Quantrell had a girlfriend that he was uh, fond of, and her name was Nancy Dawson. And Where did she live? She lived in around Bloomfield, Kentucky. Okay. And 
she, uh, uh, he wrote several poems to her, and I wanted to read a little short poem to her. But now, like everything else he did, he <laughs> stole it. <laughs> so it was a poem actually written by um, uh, Byron, and it's called My Boat is on the Shore is, is who really wrote it. But he, yeah. he changed it a little bit and made her, made her think that he wrote it. And maybe she knew better, but anyway. He said, my horse is at the door, and the enemy I soon may see. But before I go, Miss Nanny, here's a double health to thee. Here's a sigh for those who love me and a smile for those who hate. And whatever skies above me, it has springs which may be won. In this verse, as with the wine, the libation I would pour should be peace with thine and mine and all the health to thee endure. Very respectfully yours, William Clark Quantrell. Now, he wrote several poems to her, and one of them in there is really, really long, and it's, well, we don't want to get into that, but he was, uh, he was quite a poet. But, he, you know, he was an educated man. It, it, he was. Uh, you, you just, it's such an irony, the way they lived versus their background and so forth. Yeah. Here's another episode that he did. He wrote up to, uh, in April of 65, when he found out that Abraham Lincoln was shot, him and some of the Kentucky guerrillas rode up to a, to a house there around Taylorsville, and there were some ladies out on the front, and uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, this was at Jonathan Davis's house in Wakefield, Kentucky. And he, he rode up, and they were conversing with these ladies, and he said, excuse me, ladies, said, we're a little in our cups today, <laughs> but the granddaddy of all greenbacks, Abraham Lincoln, was shot at theater in Washington last night. Glasses, everybody, come on, let's have a toast. So he looked at one-armed Sam Barry and said, Barry, my one-armed comrade, you say the words. Barry said, here's to the death of Abraham Lincoln, hoping that his bones may serve in hell as a gridiron to fry Yankees on. Miss <laughs> 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 Davis said, oh, Captain Barry, how could you utter such remarks? But this is the crassness of these people. Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me. Um We'll we'll talk next uh, next podcast about the end of terror in Kentucky, how how this all came down and, and came together. We'll wind this up. Uh, we'll talk about the demise of Quantrell and the Wakefield fight, um, and what happened to him and how he met his end. All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History of the South. To find out more about the podcast and keep up with what we're doing, follow Uncommon History of the South on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast listening app. And don't forget, we have T-shirts, mugs, drinkware, and more. Um, you can see, you can find the link at the top of our um our top of our podcast in our description of our podcast notes our show notes uh this podcast is created and produced by harold edwards and brian wolfman